good morning, and again, welcome, welcome to our worship service as we declare together that Christ is risen. That's our hope. Um, and we have a we have a liturgy that goes with it, and I'd like to clue you in. Good morning, and again, welcome, welcome to our worship service as we declare together that Christ is risen. That, good morning, and again, welcome, welcome to our worship service as we declare together that Christ is risen. That, he is risen there you go. Now you know the whole entire North Wake Easter liturgy. He is, he is risen. You know, working with a subject this, uh, this grand, this expansive, this important, I wanted to bring alongside Scripture today one of the truly great literary works of our day. And in, that, in this work, two of the heroes of our story find themselves in a bit of a quandary. The third of their threesome of heroes has died. And a dead hero definitely qualifies as a quandary. What to do? There's only one option. Our two heroes, Inigo and Fezzik, <laughs> must travel to visit Miracle Max, his wife Valerie, in order to purchase a miracle. Specifically, a resurrection. And that requires, if you've read the book, yes, it's a book, a resurrection pill, right? And they say that the chocolate makes it go down easier. Now, at this point, a thoughtful viewer or reader of the story might inquire, um, can I get me one of those, right? Can I get me a resurrection pill, and to which I would reply, it depends. Okay. It depends on what kind of resurrection you want. Now, that sounds kind of odd. There are different kinds of resurrection, like uh, coach and first class. Um, not exactly. But the New Testament does show us different kinds of resurrection. And as we walk through these this morning, I'd like to walk through those with you. Keep in mind that question. What kind of resurrection do you want? Okay. And as we ponder that, I'd like to begin our time in prayer, and then we'll look at several of these resurrection stories in the New Testament. So bow with me in prayer, please. God, have mercy now. Be kind to us, your people, by your word and spirit. Bring the hope of the resurrection to us in profound ways. Ways that bring us life and joy forevermore. We truly ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. Um, the first kind of resurrection that you find as you look through the New Testament is what you could call a restorative resurrection. That is, that these are genuine resurrections from the dead performed by Jesus that restore people to life, largely to the same life they had before they died. Okay? Now, there are at least three, maybe more of these accounts in the New Testament. I'd like to look briefly at them because they give us important insights into the way Jesus does resurrection. Right? So the first of these, if you want to turn in your Bibles and chase me around this morning, 
is found in Luke's biography of Jesus' life in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with, with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier, the frame on which the body was resting, they were carrying him by, and the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear sees them all. They glorify God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, this is, this is a phenomenal story, an, an unbelievable story. It's worth reflecting on. This afternoon, you may want to go back and read it a little more, but I want to make one observation about it before we look at another incident. And that is that it is compassion that motivates Jesus to intervene and give this widow her only son back. Resurrection here is an act of compassion. Let's look at a second of this kind of resurrection story. This one comes from Matthew's biography of Jesus in chapter 9. It goes like this. When, while, he was, while Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but Jesus, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl's not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Okay. Again, let me make just one key observation about this amazing story. Right? Jesus' resurrection power is unleashed into this story because of remarkable faith. This father's faith is stunning. He believes Jesus can raise his daughter from the dead. He says to Jesus, my daughter has just died, but you come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Remarkable faith. Now there's a third of these kind of restorative resurrection stories that merges these elements of compassion on the one hand and faith on the other. It's found in John chapter 11. It's a longer story, so I'm going to condense it a little bit for you. And so what, what's happening here is that word has come to Jesus in John chapter 11 that a brother of some dear friends of his is ill. Mary and Martha were good friends of Jesus. Their brother, also a good friend of Jesus, Lazarus, was ill. And they sent word for Jesus from help. Upon hearing the news, rather than go, Jesus delays for two days before going to help Lazarus. We pick up the story. Jesus tells his disciples plainly, 
Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. When he arrives on the scene, Martha says to him, Lazarus' sister Martha, she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So amidst all of this sorrow and confusion and disappointment, Martha still confesses her her faith in Jesus and her hope in the resurrection. Jesus then has a similar encounter with Martha's sister Mary. It says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews says, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who had opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amazing story. You can just see this guy kind of. Bunny hopping out. He's all wrapped up. Jesus has raised him from the dead. We see those elements again. Great faith on the lips of Martha and even on on Mary's part. In Jesus' power over life and death. And Jesus' compassion as he weeps at Lazarus' graveside. And Jesus says it plainly. I have power over death. And And he gives himself this title. I am the resurrection and the life. That's a bold title. Call me resurrection and life. And then he backs it up because he raises Lazarus from the dead. All three of those are restorative resurrection stories. They were given back life, basically the same life that they had before they died. As much as you could have the same life having been dead and raised from the dead by Jesus, right? Now, there's another, one more incident that could fall into this category, and I'll show it to you. It's really short. I'll show it to you. It's fascinating. This is in Matthew's account, chapter 27. Jesus is now on the cross, about to die. 
the ninth hour, the hour of his death on the cross, it says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So there's this tremendous earthquake corresponds with Jesus' death, and the tombs are opened, and then at his resurrection, days later, after Jesus' resurrection, many bodies of the saints were raised and went into the holy city and appeared to many. What? What is going on here? Many people are being raised from the dead. If there was texting back in the day, don't you know the OMGs are flying, right? You won't believe what I just saw. OMG, okay? Many bodies were raised and appeared to many. How many? We don't know. Many. Something extraordinary is happening here. People are rising from the dead. Many of them. Now, with this last cluster, we don't know whether <clears throat> these were purely restorative resurrections, where they were given their life back and they just continued to live and work in the city. We don't know. It's possible they were. But what do we make of all of these restorative resurrections? Now, first of all, let me be clear. Unlike Miracle Max diagnosis in Princess Bride, these people are not mostly dead which is slightly a lie, okay? They were, in his language, all dead, okay? These were not what we would call near-death experiences. Um, there were professional mourners present. One, Lazarus had been in the tomb for days. They were all dead. And according to Miracle Max, when someone is all dead, all you can do is go through their pockets and look for loose coins, right? <laughs> Unless, unless you are the resurrection and the life. And then you raise them from the dead. You raise them to life again. See, in every one of these cases, Jesus has power over death such that his word, his touch, his own resurrection power, it's enough. It's enough. And they are raised up, and there are witnesses all around. They appeared to many. But it appears, at least especially in those first three accounts, that they are restored to their previous life, and they would be subject to death yet again, right? The widow's son, the ruler's daughter, Lazarus, they were raised to life Life was restored to them, but likely they would die again. That's why I call them restorative resurrections. They're restored to their previous life. Now, I'm not trying to diminish these miracles. Okay? To give a loved one back to their family after they 
had died. It does not get much better than that. But it does. It gets even better than that. Friends, there is another kind of resurrection that's even greater than these. But before we talk about that, um, let's go back to that question. Can I get me one of those? Can I get me one of those restorative resurrections? And uh, let me just say my answer to that uh, may be a little bit disappointing. Not likely. Not likely going to get one of those resurrections. Um, What you have just read, plus possibly one, maybe two cases in the book of Acts, this is the sum total of the restorative resurrections in the entire New Testament. Jesus makes no promises about these kinds of resurrections. They are, in a word, very rare. What they seem to be are pointers to something greater. They are pointers to someone who is greater than death, who is performing these resurrections. They are pointers to a greater resurrection, more plentiful and enduring and wonderful in every way kind of resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection is really the forerunner, the prototype of all of that. His was a different kind of resurrection. Um, Let's read it. This is Mark's short, shortest uh, summary of Jesus' resurrection in Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The idea here, as you read this account, this has the reading and the intention of being historical. This is something that they are presenting that it really happened, not make-believe. It's not fiction, this is historical. Now, my purpose today is not to defend the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, but let me just give you one perspective that I think is helpful uh, before we move on. It's one of many reasons to believe that Jesus really did actually rise from the grave. There's a guy named Ken Davis, he writes about a woman who looked out of her window and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of a neighbor's rabbit. Now, her family already did not get along well with those neighbors, so this was going to be a disaster. She grabbed a broom, pummeled the dog until it dropped the now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth, and then she panicked. She did not know what else to do. She grabbed the rabbit, took it inside, gave it a bath, blow-dried it to its original fluffiness, combed it until that rabbit was looking good, and then she snuck into the neighbor's yard, propped the rabbit back up in its cage. (laughs) An hour later, 
she hears screams coming from next door. She runs over to her neighbor. What's going on? What's wrong? She says, our rabbit, our rabbit. She says, oh, no. She says, he died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. Okay? Now, John, John Ortberg connects this story to Jesus' resurrection with the following comment. He said, look, people in the ancient world knew dead rabbits tend to stay dead. Okay? They knew dead rabbis tend to stay dead. There's a scholar, his name is N.T. Wright, and he notes that there were many messianic movements, people who claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the Christ in the first century, and in every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome as Jesus did. But, he says, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Dead rabbis stay dead. Now, Jesus' disciples knew better, too. And that's why they wrote it down for you. They knew that it was true that their rabbi alone had risen from the dead. And they wrote it down for people like you and me to read and to believe. That's why we have these accounts. Now, when you read Jesus' resurrection story, again, presented to us as historical and true and real, not make-believe. Jesus' resurrection looks to be the same kind of resurrection as those other resurrections, right? Lazarus and the others. But when you start reading about Jesus' appearances, there are some similarities, but also some striking dissimilarities. Pastor John MacArthur summarizes the New Testament teaching about this. He says, Christ's resurrection body was the same body as before, not a whole new one. After he arose, the tomb was empty. The body itself was resurrected. The very same body, but in a glorified state. The wounds from his crucifixion were still visible. The New Testament teaches he could be touched and handled. He was not merely an apparition or a phantom. He looked human in every regard. He conversed a long time with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and never once questioned his humanity. He ate real earthly food with his friends on another occasion. Yet, he says, his body also had otherworldly properties. He could pass through solid walls. He could appear in different forms, so his identity was not immediately obvious. He could suddenly appear out of nowhere. He could ascend directly into heaven in bodily form with no adverse effect right through the atmosphere. Now, here's an example from the New Testament of one of the things um, Dr. MacArthur is, is writing about. He says, and, uh, on the evening of that day, this is after Jesus' resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So Jesus has been crucified and he's risen, but he has not yet appeared to his disciples. And then suddenly, the doors being locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said to you, said to them, peace be with you. He has the ability to enter a room when the doors are locked. 
this is his body, okay? Same body. But you might say it has enhancements, okay? It can do things that it couldn't do before. So we might call this, rather than restorative resurrection, we say this is a, this is a transformative resurrection. Changes things. Um, you're raised different. Same body, but with enhancements. Okay? Paul writes about this body in 1 Corinthians 15. He describes it this way. He says, so, it is with the resurrection, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. So the old body is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Matt Perman helps us think about in what sense will our bodies be transformed. He says, Paul tells us that our current bodies are weak, perishable, unglorified, and natural. But in the resurrection state, they will be powerful, imperishable, glorious, and spiritual. Our bodies will be powerful. They'll not be subject to stress or fatigue or weakness. Our bodies will be imperishable. They will not get sick, die, age, or become injured. Our bodies will be spiritual. They'll be fully oriented to and filled with the Holy Spirit. And our bodies will be glorious. This is what we look, to, look forward to in the resurrection, glorious bodies. Perhaps the most significant enhancement is that in this kind of resurrection, you don't just cheat death and get your life back. You flail death and you get your, a new life that lasts forever. Okay? Victory over death is full and final with this kind of resurrection of which Jesus is first and foremost. Look at these um, teachings from the New Testament about Jesus' resurrection. Romans chapter 6, Paul's writing. He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is different than the other resurrections. The last book of the Bible, John has a vision of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. He describes it this way. When I saw him, he says, I fell dead at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Clearly then, Jesus' resurrection is one of a different kind, a different order. It's not just restorative, it's transformative. It's not just a temporary victory over death. It's a forever victory over death. He will never die again. Now, we could say a whole lot more about what this resurrection is like and what life is like with this kind of resurrection in, in the future. But let's go back to that question. Can I get me one of those? Can I get me one of those, one of, one of this kind of resurrection? And... Um, this is the amazing thing. There's a sense in which everybody gets one. Okay? Everybody gets a resurrection from the dead that is everlasting. Um, now, 
in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is um, pretty much the go-to guy on resurrection. He wrote more about it than anybody, I think. But listen to what he says about this future resurrection from the dead. He says, um, he's talking to some leaders in, at one of his trials. He says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In other words, everybody's going to get a resurrection. We all get one, which, which is good because we all need one. We're all going to die. Okay? Um, in spite of our best efforts, it's fascinating the efforts people make to try to, to, try to do away with death. Um, there's a guy, a Russian multimillionaire, his name is Dmitry Itzkov. He launched what he calls the 2045 Initiative and offers the promise that humans will be immortal by the year 2045. Just as soon as we make a leap into artificial machine bodies. I'm not sure we're going to be particularly human anymore at that point in time, but that's Dimitri's hope. There's a town on the French Riviera, Le Lavendou, recently passed a law barring any more burials in the town cemetery because it's full. This is what the law says. It is forbidden without a cemetery plot to die on the territory of the commune. It's illegal to die in this town. Now, at the time this was written, unfortunately, 19 people had broken that law already and were being buried in borrowed vaults from their friends. You know, there's only one law against dying that really works, and that's the law of the resurrection. If everybody needs one, and there's a sense in which everybody gets one, that changes our question a little bit. Now the question is, how do I get me one? Not can I, but how do I get me one? And at this point, we need to settle in on Jesus teaching about resurrection a little more closely. Because he says that while everybody gets a resurrection that lasts forever, there are two different kinds of resurrection within that kind of resurrection. Okay, does that make sense? Jesus is clearer than me. Let's let him explain it. He says... Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, Jesus says, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay. So within these everlasting transformative resurrections, there are two different kinds of resurrection, or at least Jesus is saying there are two different resurrection destinies. Okay. One is a resurrection to life. The other, a resurrection to judgment. And Jesus seems to have in mind here something that hundreds of years before the Old Testament prophet Daniel said. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, Daniel's a little more descriptive about these resurrection destinies. Everlasting life versus shame and everlasting contempt. Let's look at that last one first, because that's the one that nobody likes to talk about. 
the resurrection to judgment, or as Daniel put it, the resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt. See, Jesus taught that resurrection, this resurrection to judgment or to everlasting punishment is very much a reality. Listen to the language Jesus uses. Again, this is Jesus' teaching. I am not making this up. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, he's describing those, what, when they stand before God, God will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Angels. Just a couple of verses later, Jesus says again, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's interesting, scholar D.A. Carson said that Jesus taught about twice as much about judgment in hell as he did about eternal life and heaven. This judgment really exists. Apostle Paul, again, the New Testament kind of go-to expert on resurrection. He teaches something very similar, and the language here is really strong. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I know that raises a whole bunch of questions, uh, more than it answers. Um, but one thing is clear, right? If we trust Jesus on these matters, that this kind of resurrection exists, a resurrection to eternal judgment, we can decidedly say, every one of us, we can agree this is not the resurrection we had hoped for, okay? We are not interested in this resurrection. So it's important to say, how do you get one of these? How do you get a resur resurrection like this? And it seems to be what you have to do to get a resurrection like this is just keep living life normal. Don't do anything different. Because this resurrection is the default resurrection of those who trust in their own efforts rather than trust Jesus. Okay? But mercifully, as we've already seen, Jesus teaches us about a second kind of transformative resurrection. This one is to everlasting life. Listen to Jesus as he talks to Martha again at Lazarus' funeral. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And it's a little confusing at first read, but it's as though Jesus is saying, Martha, right, I am just what Lazarus needs. Whoever believes in me, though he die, that's Lazarus, yet shall he live. And I'm just what you need, Martha. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's for you, Martha. Do you believe this? Okay. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. His resurrection, the one we are celebrating today, is what makes resurrection life possible for all of us. 
That's why the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus' resurrection, and he likes to use this kind of language. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The idea of first fruits is that there's a whole bunch more that's coming after that. So Jesus' resurrection was the first of this kind, and there will be many, many that will follow as a result of it. Now, when Jesus talks about this kind of resurrection, the kind that leads to eternal life rather than to eternal judgment, he's not just talking about a resurrection that lasts a really, really long time, a forever long time. That's part of it, but there's more to what Jesus means when he talks about this resurrected eternal life. It's not just about quantity of life. It's also about a quality of life. And the most beautiful description of that I know was given to the Apostle John in a vision of what that life looks like, that resurrected life looks like in eternity. And he wrote it down for us in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the 21st chapter. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, the one on the throne in that vision, that speaking, that's God. And he is putting his stamp of authenticity, his personal guarantee on this amazing life that Jesus' resurrection can lead to. This is not John giving his opinion. He is acting as God's spokesman in the most direct of ways. So it's more than just living a really long time. It's living forever with God. He'll be our God. We'll be his people, where we experience all the benefits of knowing him, they're ours fully. No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. I suppose you could flip those around and you could say, this life will be much happiness, the fullness of life. Much rejoicing, lots of laughter, perfect health. That's the life that waits through Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' own words are really insightful. What he, he told us what eternal life was like. He said, this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God, your maker, your savior, the one who loves you so. To know him, Jesus says. And in that sense, eternal life can start now. You don't have to wait until you're dead to experience eternal life. You can know God now. Clearly, this is the kind of resurrection that we want. This is the kind of hope that we have in mind. So let's go back to that 
to that question, that latest question. How do I get me one of these resurrections, right? This kind. What do I have to do to get this kind of resurrected life? Now, if there's a go-to guy in the New Testament on matters of life and resurrection and eternal life, it's probably the Apostle John. He loves to write about it, writes about it more than anybody that I know in the New Testament. And I'd like you to listen to just a few verses of what he says about eternal life. See if you hear a pattern. He's quoting Jesus in all of these, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, he says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, This is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. A couple verses outside of that. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Can you hear the theme? Let me give you one more. Most familiar verse in the Bible that John also records. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life, John is saying again and again and again and again, comes to those who believe in Jesus. That's how you get a resurrection life like Jesus that's how you can enter into a life where you know God. Full trust in Jesus. And I know um, that leaves lots of questions. And I want you to know um, that if you have questions about that, about how you step into this resurrection life, how you embrace Christ in a way that enters you into a relationship with God as your father. Um, at the close of our service every week, our elders are always available and other leaders are available down here just to talk with you, answer your questions, set up a time we can meet later, pray with you if you have need of that. We're always available. They'll be here to, available today. We'll be down front and would love to start a conversation or set a time when we could about this important matter. But for some of you, okay, this isn't your first rodeo. This is the first, in the first time you've been drugged to church on Easter. You've heard this before. This sounds familiar to you. But this time, it kind of makes sense more. This time you sense something pulling you towards it. And maybe this is your first time hearing it, but maybe you're experiencing the very same thing. You sense that pull to believe. You know, when I was uh, about 16 years old, I had this really cool Sunday school teacher, um, convertible Camaro, mid-60s convertible, late-60s convertible Camaro. Had, had his pilot's license, so he would take us in his Camaro, take us flying in his plane. This was like the Sunday school teacher to die for, right? And um, he's, he's a friend of mine to this day. His name is Dick. And and he took us to um, a Billy Graham movie. And we went anyway, you know. It was a convertible Camaro. What the heck, you know. So we went. And I remember, I remember sitting in the back of that movie theater. 
And I watched this movie. There's a story of some uh, young guy, young college-age guy, and how he came to know Christ. It was a Billy Graham film, right? So how he came to know Christ and God in this way. And I'm sitting in the back, and they did something unusual at the end of the time. They said, if, if you're interested in that, an actual person got up at the end of the film, so if you're interested in that, come down front. We have people, kind of like what I did today, we have people that like to talk to you more about that and pray with you. And the, the strangest thing happened to me. I felt like I was shot out of that movie theater chair. And I went down front and had a conversation with somebody about how I could know God by faith in what Christ had done in my place, in the cross and the resurrection. And it, and it changed my world. Rest, the course of my life was changed for the better. And no regrets. And some of you today, you can sense that. And I just want to say, say yes to that. Don't resist that. That's God giving you faith to believe. It's a good thing. It's the best of things. Let me, let me say it as simply as I can. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice, a loving sacrifice for your sins on the cross. And then he was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. Forgiveness and eternal life are being offered to you today. This could be your day to know God in a way that lasts beyond death. This is eternal life held out for you. Receive Him, trust Him, embrace Him, and eternal life is promised you by one no less than Jesus, the Son of God himself. Okay. So if you'll bow with me, I'd like to just pray for you about that important matter. Let's pray. Father, I, I do want to pray for those who sense a light bulb coming on and a strange pull to believe. I pray that you would be kind to them right now and grant them full faith to believe. As they just acknowledge that, yes, they, need, they, they long for this life that you offer. They want to know you, but they need a Savior. Lord, help them cast all their cares and all their troubles and all their wrong choices and all their sins on Jesus and become not your enemy anymore, but your child a son or a daughter, to leave a kingdom that is full of darkness and come into a kingdom that's full of resurrection light. Lord, some of us in this room have already walked this path. We've already said yes to this. But as we're sitting here, we're thinking of people and we're troubled by what their resurrection destiny might be. God, grant us grace and an open door, great love, much faith, to have conversations with them about a better destiny, a more hopeful resurrection. And God, we as your people, we want to worship you for this. We gr Grant us faith and joy and passion and love that we might worship you with all our heart, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because Christ bore the cross for us, and on the third day, he rose. 
church, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's stand and worship him, the risen Christ, together.